Hi, this is Brian Choi, CEO of the Food Institute, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we are speaking with Joanna Lopore, Global Foresight Lead at Mars Wrigley. Joanna will be sharing some insights into how Mars is thinking about future growth opportunities and innovation in its various portfolio businesses. But before we get started, I'd like to ask all of our listeners today to share this episode within your networks. It's a huge help to us, and we wanted to thank everyone who's done so before. If you're new to the FI podcast, please follow, like, and share as it extends our reach, and we really appreciate it when you do so. Today's episode is sponsored by Markham LLP. Markham's Food and Beverage Services Group provides the accounting, tax, and consulting services so that companies can concentrate on the growth of their business. For more information, please visit www.markhamllp.com industries food beverage. On Thursday, September 9th, Markham is hosting its virtual New York Food and Beverage Summit. The theme of the summit is on innovation, how food and beverage companies are adapting in a post-pandemic world. Registration is free, so please take a look for the registration links in our description. With that said, I'll introduce Joe. How are you today? I'm good, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan. Excellent. Um, well, so to kick things off, Joe, please share with our audience a little more about your background and your fascinating role at Mars Wrigley. Yeah, so my, as my title denotes, I'm in foresight. And what I like to say to people is that I get to imagine the future of chocolate, which sounds incredibly exciting. And it, and it really is a great, um, great position within the company to help influence the change um, that we want to see inside of our industry. So I'm the global foresight lead and I look after North America specifically as part of a global team. I uh, have been in the role since November of 2020, so it's actually a newly created function inside of Mars Wrigley, inside of what we call our human intelligence team, so traditionally like an insights team. And as part of that, I've actually moved from Australia, which you can probably hear from my accent, um, to the US uh, just two months ago. So it's a really, really exciting, um, I guess, change, change in my life on multiple fronts um, and a really interesting thing to do within a pandemic as well, I would say. Um, and prior to my role in Foresight and Insights at Mars Wrigley, I've been uh, working across a multitude of industries inside of marketing innovation. So I've always been incredibly passionate about how we can evolve some of the innovative thinking inside of the food and beverage industry. Excellent. What a, what a, what a great job. You know, uh, I'm sure many people um, as part of our audience would love to, to be in the seat that you are in. Um, but, uh, you know, our next question, you know, Mars Wrigley is one of the leading uh, manufacturers of chocolate, ch chewing gum, mints, and fruity confections. Can you share with our audience how, you know, each of the segments that you are in, um, you know, how it's done over the past few years, you know, whatever insights you're able to share and what you expect going forward in a post-pandemic environment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, confectionery is a category that's always done really well. It's sort of grown at a CAGR of about 2% traditionally, and it continues to, to perform really well, even within the pandemic. And it's expected to continue to grow. It plays a really important role in people's lives. And I think what's really interesting is that it's sort of expanded its reach or its footprint beyond sort of that aisle, the confectionery aisle, the candy aisle. Um, into things like baking, ice cream, QSR, dairy snacks, cookies, even spreads. So it has sort of a, um, a heartland inside of confectionery, but a great opportunity to sort of expand 
And that's kind of how we're thinking about it inside of Mars Wrigley is we think of it as treats and snacks. So we're broadening that definition uh, of what role our brands and our products play and really thinking about how we can be appropriate to the moment for a consumer when they're buying it or when they're consuming it or when they're sharing it with others, you know, really putting the, the consumer or the human being at the heart of everything that we do. And I think the pandemic obviously impacted us like it impacted every other um, category and, you know, some some upsides, some downsides. Um, I think any portfolio that had out of home as it's sort of a, a core medium for sales was impacted and, and certainly our sort of gum and mints portfolio um, or our impulse portfolio was impacted by that as people were not in transit, not on their way to work, you know, not out and about enjoying their lives. Um, but then on the flip side, we had pockets of our portfolio that were, um, you know, benefiting from some of those, you know, moments inside of the home where people were looking to reconnect and really have those uh, sort of traditions and, and moments of connection reinstated or even just small moments of happiness. So there's been some sort of ups and downs. And I think just thinking, you know, more broadly to your question around growth of the category over the last few years and some of the things that we've seen. Um, definitely, you know, within chocolate, I think, you know, it's worthwhile pointing out the broadening of competition. So um, I guess the substitutability of consumers being able to pick a um, muesli bar or even, you know, have a, have a, um, uh, a healthy snack in place of a chocolate bar or have something even more indulgent like a you know, a triple triple donut shake in place of a chocolate bar. So sort of that substitutability and the repertoire of people. Um, but also I think that chocolate has become more, even more emotional. So it's already an emotive category. We buy it based on emotions versus functional needs. Um, and certainly, you know, I think in 2020 and the pandemic, um, that's really come into play and enabled people to sort of come together and have even moments of um, care and sharing and gratitude or even just humor. So a lot of our brands play in that space, M&Ms, Snickers, um, you know, just a moment of laughter in what has been a tumultuous time in people's lives. Um, and that's sort of how we, how we more broadly think about, you know, the reevaluation of some of our segments or how our categories are performing is, you know, really focusing it down into the moments or the micro moments inside of people's lives and how we can be most relevant and most useful to them. Yeah, it's interesting that during the pandemic, um, there was that initial influx of uh, interest in comfort food, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And so people gravitated towards that comfort. And then interesting, what we found here at the Food Institute is that you know, as, as the months progressed, there was more and more interest towards kind of that, that healthier alternative that you mentioned, Joe. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess going forward, is the chocolate category one that, you know, as the foresight lead of Mars Wrigley, do you still project, you know, the 2%, you know, 2 plus percent growth going forward? Or what's, what's kind of the thinking around there? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's um, it's worthwhile sort of saying that in Foresight, we try to look five and 10 years out. So we have a, a whole host of people in the business that are looking at, you know, like a one to three year forecast for chocolate. And um, obviously, we hope that that's going to continue to be strong. 
Um, when we're in Foresight looking at that longer term horizon and perspective, we're trying to give the business guidance around some of those things that you mentioned, some of those changing macro forces in the world. You know, what are people actually wanting to get more out of in their day to day or in their, you know, their value systems, how they want to activate against those. So I think health and wellness is a question that we get asked really often, not just externally, but internally. And in some ways, it's it's sort of pigeonholed to be a headwind, um, but in many ways, it's a tailwind for our category, particularly if we think about, you know, really the role that um, small moments of joy and pleasure or even a moment of peace and quiet um, where I can have a piece of chocolate, what that means for people, um, for their <laughs> mental sanity. I know that for me, it's meant a lot. But mm-hmm. also just thinking about, you know, the potential for us to reframe treats and snacks and how we can broaden, um, you know, how we provide solutions to people. So uh, one of the things that we talk about quite a lot is that people are contradictory. So this is sort of like our, our mandate inside of human intelligence, right, is to sort of really get past segmentation and um, pigeonholing people and stereotyping them. But, you know, people are con- contradictory. They want both, uh, depending on the moment. So uh, I think the pandemic is a really great example of what you were saying. You know, people were really leaning into comfort and indulgence, but also they were looking at, you know, how close their snack cupboard was to them. And maybe I need to start changing some of my habits. Or even if we think longer term from the last decade, people's goals towards their health and wellness has been more around flexible diets and flexible lifestyles and um, creating some sort of a balance between enjoying myself and living my life to the full with a little bit of moderation and responsibility. So all of these things are sort of, I guess, just denoting the complexity of human beings. Um, And when we look at future opportunities, we always try to sort of bring that in as really understanding what what moments are going to be most relevant to them and how can you help them achieve their goals and how can you help them still get that small moment of you know, um, satisfaction or pleasure or enjoyment or even, you know, connection because food is the ultimate connector of people right? Um, while still delivering on those sort of higher level um, societal, planetary uh, wellness needs that people are seeking. Got it. Um, I'd like to um, do some contrasting here between the, the chocolate category and maybe even the chewing gum and mints. Um, so you mentioned about the consumer, right? And so how you're thinking about the consumer, you know, in in a holistic way. In what you know, in what um, scenarios do you feel like the uh, you know for the chewing gum and mints category, like what will drive uh, consumers to uh, purchase more of those products versus versus the chocolate? I just I just wanted to 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 make that distinction and and get your perspectives on kind of what what's driving consumers to gravitate towards one category versus the other. Yeah, well, chewing gum, uh, chewing gum and mints, I would say, are traditionally much more of a functional product. Primarily, they serve more of a functional need to freshen, um, or inside of more of those. Um, social settings where you're trying to think about your own level of confidence (laughs) and I think mask breath has has, uh, really reiterated that for people is um, this really funny movement where people were inside of their home with bad breath they didn't actually care like my husband can cop it I don't mind whereas (laughs) in a social setting at work it's a very different story Um, so yeah primarily it serves a very functional need and I think um, one of the things that we're really recognizing is similar to chocolate Uh, we're broadening the definition of it. So it's not just to freshen, it's also doing so many other things for people, which is, you know, some of the things that we're looking at when we're investing in future 
forward opportunities is, you know, young people in particular, we know over index on consumption of chewing gum. So what do they use it for? Um, we know that they're studying, they're fidgeting, they're trying to create some sort of a, a moment of control in their lives or a moment of focus on what they're doing. Um, even, um, you know, some of the recent innovation we've done in, with Razor Gum is thinking about the moments where they're currently, you know, living their lives like gaming and how do you be an enabler of them to have a better moment or to be more focused or, you know, have a better performance. So I guess that's one of the big shifts that we're seeing inside of chewing gum is that it's almost like a, a medium for so many more um, moments to be better activated for people. And I think chocolate chocolate is sort of undergoing that same change and transition in the industry. We're thinking about chocolate as sort of what I alluded to before is um, what role it plays in activating brand values or uh, giving back to sort of more bigger planetary causes, um, but also thinking about it as being, you know, primarily this uh, emotional, social connector and really s- sort of staying true to that in a lot of ways. And I think I'm really lucky that I, you know, now live in in America because I can see, I can sort of see it firsthand. Um, not that I couldn't in Australia, but Australia is a very small market and M&Ms is just like so dominant here. And you can see this um, cultural affinity that people have with it. I think it's a really great example of the role that not only products and product formats play in people's lives, but also brands. And how much, you know, we, we sort of hate to say it in masks, we, you know, we don't believe in brand love, but it really is. It's brand love. People actually, you know, treat treat these products as their best friend. And that's another thing that we've seen beyond sort of chocolate and M&Ms. We've seen that with um, brands like Extra and Orbit and Chewing Gum. It's like if I'm uh, an 18-year-old, you know, cramming for my end of year exam and I'm <laughs> sort of struggling through a pandemic when I haven't seen my friends in 12 months, that chewing gum can feel like a best friend to you. So that's kind of more broadly what I would say is we're, we're trying to sort of rethink the definitions of a product format and really think about what role it plays in people's lives. You know, as a foresight lead of Mars Wrigley, you know, where do you see the food and beverage industry going in three to five years? You mentioned that you look at things from a longer term perspective, you know, uh, relative to some of the other, um, you know, companies. And so how is Mars positioning itself in light of your views? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because one of the things that we're really um, trying to communicate to the business now is that we're going to be in a pandemic for a while longer. Um, the recovery period is going to be significantly extended to probably that five-year lens that you're looking at in that question. So we sort of identified that we'll we'll go through um, sort of what we're calling a resilient recovery where we're starting to sort of not only rebuild our economy, but also social norms and, you know, how do we want to work and how do we want to connect with people and what role does technology play in our lives? So all of these things are going to play out in that three to five-year lens. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're highlighting within that I guess it's a slightly shorter term lens is the role of technology. So uh, the interconnection of trends, I think technology is a great example of that. So it's sort of like the lifeblood or the the bloodlines between all of the other macro trends and everything else that's going on in our lives and how we, um, how we uh, trace our products, uh, how we shop for products, how we connect with people, how we entertain ourselves. It's a part of our lives sort of end to end from the moment we wake up and look at our phones. So 
um, you know, we're really thinking about, you know, some of the innovation that's currently in play now in enhancing those more virtual or online moments, but also around how we're seeing innovation sort of meld into the background of our lives. How, how is technology starting to become more invisible because we're very in tune with the fact that we don't want technology to overtake our lives. Mm -hmm. So that's one big shift. I think that the other uh, big one for us is that we're starting to see this sort of inflection or, or introspection um, from consumers. And it was sort of happening before the pandemic, but then the pandemic like really made us pause our lives and really think about what matters and who do I want in my life? Who do I not? And do I want to work for this place or do I not? You know, really this massive moment of introspection. And that's a really big shift, I think, that we've been seeing over the last decade is conscious consumerism, people really thinking about their choices, you know, reflecting how they want to present themselves inside of the context of the world that they live in. You know, are they comfortable with social norms? Um, do they feel like we're achieving the type of, you know, equity that we should have? Um, you know, really thinking about um, calming themselves as well. So our lives are so hectic and there's so much change and uncertainty and then boom, the pandemic hit and that was just, you know, tripled. So people really thinking about self-care. How do I, how do I look after myself? How do I look after my family? Those sort of basic human needs. And then, um, you know, at the same time, they're thinking about how they can experiment and discover new things and create more joy inside of their lives and sort of discover new things as well as self-discover things about themselves. So um, it's a really sort of interesting, um, it's a really interesting time for an insights person, I would say, to be in the industry, but also a marketer um, because it offers us so many opportunities to think about, you know, how does your brand allow you to be um, a part of that journey of a consumer's life when they're thinking about you know, how do I create more calm inside of my life? Moments of reset, what role could a gum that offers me that mint, that sensorial mint refresh play inside mm -hmm. of a consumer's life? Or what role does a, a chocolate brand that, or actually, I mean, even like Skittles. Skittles is all about, you know, celebrating, you know, different personalities and different um, sort of uh, pushing against cultural norms um, what role could it play inside of this this sort of new norm that we're creating inside of society? So I think it's a really, really, really interesting and exciting time for brands in that, even in that shorter sort of three to five year lens. Yeah, yeah very interesting. You know, one of the things that, you know, we, we found, um, you know, here at the Food Institute is, especially in the confectionery space and, and particularly focused on chocolate, we're finding that a lot of C CPG companies are, are focused a, a lot on portion control. Right. So it kind of lends itself well into the whole, you know, um, health and wellness trend. And so uh, whether it's creating a hundred calorie package or um, or some other other ways that, you know, that people can indulge um, and still and not feel guilty about it. What are you seeing? Is that is that a similar mindset that you're seeing are consumers focused on portion control, especially when in these indulgent areas within chocolate? Yeah, I think, you know, particularly products that can offer portionability so that I, I as a consumer can be more in control of how I, you know, mindfully, hopefully eat, I think is a really big thing for us. Also, just making sure that the portions are, you know, um, at a responsible level of calories and sugar and all of those things. So, 
um, I think one of the, you know, one of the things that we're seeing inside of what you're speaking to there is like greater access to healthier choices, partnerships with healthier brands, even, you know, something, um, uh, something that uh, allows us to partner with brands outside of the food space or partner with our retailers on better for you options or better advice. Um, but also um, thinking about those uh, moments of celebration. So those moments where people do come together and they want to sort of have enjoyment or treat their child or whatever it might be. Um, how do we play a better role inside of that? But all of that is in the context of how do we give people back control? So I think one of the big things that we're seeing is that people don't necessarily want, want to be told what to eat or what not to eat or have too much regulation sort of, you know, shoved in front of them. So we really want to sort of uh, create solutions that listen to what consumers need and how they want to how to want, how they want to be in control and self-sustainable and responsible inside of their own lives. So taking responsibility ourselves and what we should be doing, but also really giving them back control. Very interesting. Um, you know, some of uh, Mars's competitors have you know, has invested in concepts related to better for you, uh, functional ingredients, low sugar, vegan, premium pet food. Um, in some cases, these competitors ventured into unfamiliar territory and have since divested of these assets. Um, so from your standpoint, you know, where do you see the most opportunity for Mars within you know, some of the categories that, um, that I mentioned? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I just love it when chocolate brands go into jerky. <laughs> it's just, it just reminds you that really you can do anything. But I mean, I say that in jest, but also truthfully, I think it's really great that we're starting to think about how we can adapt our business models. So um, us inside of Mars Wrigley, but also, you know, our competitors, how do we really think about how people are you know, consuming our products and are, and are living and breathing our categories and really think outside the box a little bit into coming up with new ideas and new solutions. So I really actually really like that adaptability mindset. And definitely, you know, we've done a little bit of that when we think about sort of thinking about treats and snacks and where people are headed. We've uh, obviously a few years ago now we bought Kind and most recently, we bought Nature's Bakery. So we've welcomed that wonderful team into our family. We've tried a few things um, in going down different routes, like the Dove vegan chocolate that we launched in Europe. And there's a lot of other innovation that we're sort of exploring in that space. I would say that when we're thinking about better for you, um, you know, one of the big pushes that we're, we're giving back to the business inside of Foresight is to think about better for you as better for me, better for my society or my community and better for the planet. So really connecting that together because we see not only the interconnection of trends as being incredibly powerful, but also really that connection is being made by the consumer. They're thinking about their own individual evaluation of a product that they buy and how it you know, gives back to the local sellers, producers, how it um, has a footprint on the planet. So really trying to think about innovation in that space. So I think the regen regenerative revolution or upcycled snacks are a great example of that. You know, usually upcycled snacks are like rind, um, you know, or noons. They're a little bit healthier. They're more, I guess, conscientiously made and they're obviously, uh, you know, a better footprint for the planet. So that's one of the big areas that um, that we're sort of highlighting as a foresight team. And I would say probably one that I'm just personally passionate about. I think, you know, re regenerative solutions and thinking about how we can be 
um, making a better impact on human beings alongside making a better impact on the planet is not only a great opportunity, but also our responsibility. Absolutely. Um, and here's a, here's a fun question for you, Joe. You know, as a foresight lead looking out 10 years down the road, what are some crazy outlier predictions or maybe not predictions, but some thoughts that you might have on categories that might make a, a pretty big move in the whole confectionery and, and, and snacks category? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, this is where I get to have a bit of fun, right? <laughs> so um, I think I, I would start with probably the one that's like furthest out on the horizon of that 10 years, sort of 2030, maybe even 2035, is really thinking about scaling lab-made, so biotech and food, um, cellular agriculture and lab-made chocolate. And this is the one where, you know, when we talk about this in the industry, there's sort of a consensus that it's much further away, but we've all seen the huge growth of lab-made meat and um, all of that really being able to reach scale very quickly when consumers demand that from uh, whether it's, you know, uh, fast food outlets or their local supermarket. So, um, you know, the more that these things get access and are, you know, um, you know, easy for people to reach, but also affordable and tastes better and healthier because they're not all very healthy at the moment. The more that we improve on those four things, the more that we can see, you know, real expansion in that space and for it to impact confectionery. And, you know, I often sort of say this example to businesses, but, you know, the urgent company is already doing it today. It's already worth $23 billion in food today. So it's a, it's a huge opportunity that's already impacting our category. And I think it's, it's one that has huge potential for um, a better planetary impact as well. And then probably closer in, um, I would say that there's, there's really great opportunity um, in uh, thinking about local um local impact, but also celebrating what's local. So if we think about um, ethical products at a smaller local level, so community hubs where we share our resources with local suppliers or celebrating local native indigenous ingredients or even ancient processes from different parts of the world, or even just celebrating the fact that, like, for example, our mass products, we have factories all across the world and a shorter supply chain and, um, you know, celebrating the fact that you're getting your American chocolate from a company that makes it in America that's also American-owned and founded and it's a family company. It's still owned by the Mars family. Just talking to a lot of those things I think are, are really more shorter term but very impactful opportunities. Great. Um, and one of the other trends that we've been seeing is that, you know, Omnichannel has, has you know, shifted quite a bit over the past two years. Um, you know, some of the data that we're looking at, um, you know, speaks to how, you know, pre-pandemic, you, you only had about maybe seven, maybe 8% uh, that had like an omni-channel um, sort of buying pattern. Whereas post-pandemic, that that uh, number has shot up four times roughly. Um, and so how do you see consumer sh shopping pattern changing, you know, uh, in the near future or even kind of beyond, you know, three, five, even 10 years? Yeah, tremendously. I think, again, the pandemic was a great example of where we became more open to getting what we need in a different way or an easier way or, you know, by default because we had to. And it's sort of, you know, I think what's really interesting within that is that it's it's the older generations who went into e-com the most. That's where we saw the most amount of growth. 
So it's really sort of um, opening our eyes as a business, particularly around impulse moments and transactions and the shopping of the future, the store of the future. There's so much interesting stuff going on in there. And I think, you know, some of the big opportunities that may be a little bit further out. Um, one is uh, social commerce or live streaming or even thinking about how we create the bridge between entertainment and shopping. Um, and social commerce is 13% in the US of what it is in China today. So it's got huge potential to grow. And we're starting to see, you know, retailers dabble in that space and partner with brands and partner with content creators. So that's that's a really exciting one. Another is really thinking about online shopping as it starts to evolve as part of that sort of context of omni-channel shopping and people sort of shopping across different different locations is how do you make that a better experience? Because if we're being honest, it's not very good today. It's got a lot of flaws and because of the, the sort of burst in traffic on there, we've become more aware of it. So how do you create a moment of discovery inside of online shopping? The same as when you have inside of a store, when you walk around the corner and bump into a display. Um, but also how do you make it a little bit more seamless and more responsive? So if, you, if you're if you talking about sort of 10, 15 years out, it's things like the internet of the senses. So, you know, really sort of a physical reaction from your online shopping um, that lets you maybe even stop and reflect on your decisions or it might make it more interactive. It might even get you like a taste test of the product that you're about to buy through technology. So it's, it's really sort of <laughs> out there futuristic stuff. Um, but it's already technology that we're playing with now if you think about like haptics, haptics technology. So I think online shopping is going to undergo that kind of revolution, which is cool. Um, and then I would say I think that there's a really interesting um, – a contradiction or tension that's happening inside of shopping where we're seeing a growth of subscription for example this thing that we've has been around for a pretty long time but now it's sort of booming again as people think about you know that those things that are worth waiting for that pack that's specifically tailored to me and my needs maybe in the future it's tailored to my dna um, but also even things like uh, pop-up grocer uh, which we're seeing in the u.s where they they travel around and you're sort of searching them out and you're waiting for them. So there's things that are building on our patients, but then also things that are tapping into our need of immediacy. So 10 minute delivery, five minute delivery, drones delivering what I need. So it's this interesting sort of trend and counter trend um, that I think is worth keeping an eye on. That's fascinating. It's, uh, it's, it's scary and exciting at the same time, just to see the possibilities you know, when you mentioned the haptic part of, of buying, I, don't, I can't even imagine what that what that looks like or feels like. Uh, but um, but definitely interesting and fascinating. Um, you know, related to the whole omni-channel experience, you know, obviously demographics is a major um, part of thinking about how consumers buy um, and how what motivates them to to, to buy. And so, you know, wanted to to get your insight as Mars Wrigley. How do you view the various demographic cohorts, you know, whether it's, you know, Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, uh, even baby boomers, I'm sure um, you have consumers, many consumers in each of these various categories. Uh, what are some of the differences that you see kind of going forward? Yeah, we definitely look at this and we, we try to stay away from uh, simple segmentation inside of Mars Wrigley. So we follow sort of uh, laws of growth and thinking about a consumer more, I guess, in line to your question, the psychographic impact. So I'm a family or what I need for um, me and my partner or me and my pet um, versus just looking at uh, 
a simple segmentation. That being said, we're on a journey, I think like most companies are, to better understand the youth culture and really understanding how different um, the, the younger generations are and how they're growing up. And I'd say, you know, obviously we spent so much time as an industry digging into millennials and talking about them and trying to understand them. And now they're having families and they're, you know, um, active members of the workforce. And, you know, the big challenge for them has been really for them. And I would say Gen X is adapting to working from home and trying to juggle my life and my family and, you know, all the gender imbalance and everything else that comes with that. And then I think for the the older generation, it's it's really um, it's a really interesting time for us to really think about how we support our older growing population, um, not just with the infrastructure, but also with mental support and how we make them feel a part of our broader planet and not excluded. And then with the younger generation, it's, it's all those obvious things that we're talking about, you know, where they're, they're really activating against their values differently. They're really sort of putting, putting their, I guess their, their mouth where their values are, maybe not their money because they don't have a lot of money. Um, but they're really growing up very differently and they're more economically impacted. They don't have as much discretionary spend. They're living at home longer. They're questioning, you know, whether they even want an education. They're going down different career paths. They're becoming content creators and, and creating their own small businesses. So they're a really interesting cohort for us to have a think about when we think about the role of brands and, you know, when they become parents in 10 years time, what's going to happen with them. And I think when we think about the correlation between Gen Z and brands and sort of Mars Wrigley and what we do, it's, it's again, it's sort of complex. It's, there are contradictions and tensions there, particularly when we look across different parts of the world. So as an example, in the US, we know that younger people want a brand, a food brand, a chocolate bar to stand for something. They want us to be politically active and they want our CEO and our president to be you know, very vocal about things. Whereas if we look at another market like China, they want brands to, you know, be respectful and stay out of politics and really just play the role that they're meant to and maybe even support more at the local level. Um, and, and um, yeah, if we, if we think about, you know, really understanding Gen Z, you know, one of the big things that we're pushing for in Foresight is, you know, they're, they're going to be in their 30s in 10 years' time. We're now thinking about Gen Alpha, which are going to be in their 20s by 2030. You know, how is this younger generation growing up? They're, you know, they're being raised in a completely different environment with a different set of values. So um, it's really, I think for us, when we think about future generations or even, you know, segmentations of consumers, we try to think about how we can be most relevant and relevance is all about understanding context. So the context of their conversations, the context of their value systems, the context of the, the you know, part of the world that they live in um, and the, the context of the moments. So how do they come together? What are they doing and what are they wanting? How do they want to connect? Because kind of going back to the original point, food is all about connection. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, you know, and uh, my last question here is, you know, we've seen quite a few collaborative partnerships between food and beverage companies, you know, uh, mentioning, you know, Pepsi and Beyond Meat as just one example. You know, what's the strategy behind these collaborations? And then you, in your view, have they been successful? Do you expect to see more of these partnerships in the near future? Yeah, definitely. And this is one that I'm really personally, professionally passionate about. It's one that the Mars family is also really passionate about when we think about, you know, there's sort of um, collaboration from a, a business benefit or you're trying to grow your relevance inside of a specific, you know, occasion, for example, the five gum and razor example. 
Um, there's also partnerships around, say, sustainability, like partnering with, um, you know, companies that allow us to activate against the SDGs. So collaboration, I think, can can play so many different roles inside of a, a business. And definitely what we're seeing and what we're pushing or advocating for inside of Foresight is uh, collaborative um, or partnership ecosystems. So how do you make this a part of your business strategy? How do you create, for example, an online platform that allows you to sell your products, but also allows minority brands to sell their products? How do you share your infrastructure with them? How do you partner with small local producers? How do you share your media reach with smaller brands? Um, you know, in the context of climate change and societal health, um, we're also seeing a lot of cross-cultural collaboration with brands or co-petition, as it's being called. Um, I think the Ren example in beauty is a great one where they promoted their competitors and said, we are allies because we're all using sustainable packaging. Actually, we don't mind which of us you buy because you're making a better choice. So I love that whole sentiment. And I think the last piece of the puzzle is really sharing your knowledge, sharing your thinking, you know, just being really open to having a conversation about what you're seeing and what, you know, what intent you want to play out in the world, which is, you know, a part of foresight, right, is creating the future or co-creating the future that you want to see. And that's where, um, you know, inside of Foresight, we've created the, the Future Imagined podcast is essentially a podcast that we run and we get, you know, people from different industries on there. We've had PepsiCo on there. Um, we've had our competitors on there and it's just an opportunity for us, again, to just sort of open the lines of communication and see how we can create meaningful change by combining our power. Great. And if our audience members wanted to learn more about your podcast, where, where can they go, Joe? It is available in all public forums now. We've made it accessible for the same reasons that, you know, we were just talking about around sharing our knowledge. So you can search for Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast, and hopefully you can find it and take a listen. So that about wraps it up for this edition of the FI podcast. I'd like to thank Joe for spending time with us today and also our sponsor, Markham LLP, who made this episode possible. Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about Food Institute and what membership can do for you, please take a look at the links in our description. Until next time, this is Brian Choi signing off. Mm -hmm.